Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 111, The League of Extraordinary Expectations. Alright, I'm going to level with you. I was afraid that I'd never be able to work my way out of those Soviet episodes. But the deed is now done, and we can finally move on to new topics. As promised many months ago, we are nearly done with the first season, with the only remaining major nation to discuss being the United States. But first, we're going to stop and tackle a series of episodes that broadly relate to the international attempts to establish a lasting peace. Yes, for 110 episodes, I've been detailing why conflicting interests prevented a stable settlement, but there actually were honest attempts at preventing an outbreak of a future large-scale war. The main downfall for all these attempts was that they were still new initiatives, untested in the realm of diplomacy that up until then had been concerned primarily with power and who had it. And those efforts demanded that faith be placed in international organizations and treaties that left some questioning if one could be a loyal patriot and a peace-seeking internationalist at the same time. Which, come to think of it, we still have that problem to this very day, so maybe some of this will actually be topical. In any event, we're going to be starting this little series off in familiar territory, the aftermath of World War I. Having worked my way through so much of the history of the 1920s and how its issues permutated the next two decades that followed, I'm inclined to say that the 20th century really began in 1914. The victors of World War I may have wished to return to their happy equilibriums of before the war, but the damage was far too great for anything like that. You don't just leave millions of dead in the trenches with millions more maimed and expect the clock to be rolled back. Even before the fighting had ceased, there were expectations that safeguards would be put in place to prevent anything like the war from ever happening again. And the big safeguard to world peace from 1920 onwards was supposed to be the League of Nations. That organization was an international body where member states met to hash out disputes while its various departments worked to make the world a better place in the fields of labor, crime, civil rights, and access to basic necessities. If that sounds like the United Nations to you, congrats, the League was basically that. It doesn't get cited as much because, out of all its goals, its biggest was to prevent a world war from ever happening again, which obviously it failed miserably at. The UN gets better press because World War III never went down, although these days it has been looking more and more like its unfortunate predecessor. But the League was an impressive achievement given the context of the day. Sure, there had been plenty of non-governmental organizations that had operated across national lines, but never that comprehensively and never with the direct backing of so many of the world's governments. And that dizzying scope of activity could only have been spurned by failures on a truly global scale. What was conventionally recognized as the biggest problem facing peaceful relations pre-1914 were the imperfect diplomatic mechanisms between the great powers. Diplomacy had certainly advanced with rapid communication, and the exchange of missives between capitals could be done almost instantly. The problem wasn't in the technical realm, though, but rather in the mindsets of the great powers. This special club consisted of the major European empires, with the United States typically acknowledged as a de facto, if unassuming, member of the group. Eventually, Japan was also let in, but its sphere of interest was localized. The big focus was in Europe, because that's where the major industrialized states of the world were. 
Diplomacy leading up to 1914 was descended from the concept of a concert of Europe, a carefully choreographed interlocking sequence of relations that regarded general peace as mutually beneficial. The concert, though, had been established before Germany had been unified and before the ambitions of nationalism tore through the European psyche. The 1860s would see Otto von Bismarck set in motion his three wars to unify Germany, and his masterpiece, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, would be a resounding success, but also fatally undermine the stability of European diplomacy. A united Germany was simply too populous and economically productive to be anything other than a threat to everyone around it. For a time, this was smoothed over by Bismarck's own diplomatic acumen, which was helped by the fact that in his eyes, everything that needed accomplishing had been done. All that was left was to defend the new empire which meant that his maneuverings and interlocking alliances were defensive in nature, designed to prevent the outbreak of a general war. But nobody can stay on the world stage forever, and Bismarck was eventually seen off by the new Kaiser Wilhelm II. Willie didn't look at his incredibly advanced and relatively prosperous empire with contented eyes. Like so many nationalists of the day, he wanted more, and he was perfectly willing to start bucking convention and flexing to get more. To obtain more influence in Africa, he publicly supported the Boers against the UK in their war in South Africa. He built a gigantic navy whose only target could be the UK's own Royal Navy, triggering an arms race. He maintained an army that theoretically was capable of handling both France and Russia. He antagonized the French over influence in Morocco and left his cousin Nicky hanging when Russia and Japan came to blows. After, of course, egging on Nicholas to get into the fight in the first place. He was just really bad at diplomacy and lacked any tact whatsoever. And he was kind of the poster boy of the pitfalls of the concert of Europe. It worked when everybody's first inclination was to not go to war. But when somebody wanted to do a little brinkmanship, it led to a spiral of escalation that became hard to stop. Wilhelm continuously said, eh, what the hell, and decided to go for his ambitions, even though almost every time it damaged his own standing and left everyone else one step closer to saying what the hell themselves and taking a shot at him and his empire. I am being simplistic here. Germany wasn't the only offender in causing trouble, just the easiest example to point to. To deal with a touchy situation, the main recourse among the great powers was in calling for some type of conference. A good example was the Berlin Conference called by Bismarck in order to adjudicate the colonial borders of Africa. By 1884, the scramble for Africa had left the Europeans scrambling all over each other, and tensions were flaring. Not personally caring all that much about Africa, Bismarck called everyone together and hashed out the map of an entire continent. While this obviously didn't work out too well for the Africans themselves, For the Europeans, it was great because someone was willing to initiate the conference and preside over it and act as a neutral broker. The problem was that those types of conferences weren't a given, nor was anyone obliged to go along with the conference if it took place. It was all based on unwritten rules that were gradually discarded as the years ticked by, until finally the whole thing blew up and the so-called great powers spent four agonizing years dismantling themselves. So, the system of simultaneous unilateral action didn't pan out. Go figure. And to be fair to everybody, it didn't take the full four years of World War I to convince people that a change in international behavior was going to be required. 
President Woodrow Wilson of the United States actually workshopped the idea of a Pan-American treaty that would bind the nations of the Western Hemisphere into a kind of proto-league of nations, which would hopefully serve as an example to the misbehaving Europeans. In a little bit of foreshadowing, this idea ran into domestic opposition and wrangling from prospective partners in the Americas. Still, Wilson lingered on the idea, and despite opposition from fellow leaders, the general public was actually pretty enthusiastic about it. Also in the United States, during the midst of World War I, an organization called the League to Enforce Peace was founded in 1915. Presided over by former President Taft during its first convention and patronized by a number of national notables, the organization began distributing literature advocating for collective security measures. A similar concept was also being kicked around on taunt capitals for what to do once the war had been concluded, which in tandem with what Wilson was proposing had a receptive audience. Because while most Europeans were patriotic enough to support a fight to the finish, by at least the mid-war, enough people had died that they were ready to support an international body of nations. The problem all the way up to the eventual League of Nations formation, though, was that nobody could quite agree on what the League was really supposed to be. The broad sketch seemed easy enough, that there would be a forum where every nation would send representatives, and that body would be tasked with maintaining the global peace. It was a priority rooted in the liberalism of that era, where individual liberties and protection of private property were of the utmost importance. Those concepts would be applied to the highest levels of society, with the independence and territorial integrity of nations being safeguarded. This left open how those concepts would be safeguarded in actual practice, with some advocating an international army, others preferring the classic go-to of liberalism, economic sanctions. Still others envisioned the League would simply be a buffer, a go-between body that would interject between two bickering states, forcing both to, to the negotiating table before disputes went too far and allowing tempers to cool off. This last idea was the brainchild of what was called the Fillmore Committee, a group in the UK set up by the government to make a coherent platform for the proposed League of Nations. Their report was suitably practical. They recognized that there would still be wars and conflicts in the world, but judicious use of arbitration would serve to reveal future aggressors who refused to engage in a peaceful settlement. And once revealed, they could be open to sanctions and ostracism. It was Jan Smoots, the Boer guerrilla-turned-imperial ally, that offered an expanded view of the League's mission beyond simple peacekeeping. The end of World War I had seen the dissolution of multiple empires, with their subject peoples no longer connected to the old cores. With the Paris Peace Conference approaching, he laid out that there were now, as he put it, bankrupt estates on the market that the League should become the trustee of meaning that they would be administered internationally rather than given immediate independence. I went over the mandate system way back in episode 2 and have touched on it here and there in the meantime, so I won't be going heavily into it here. Just remember that the old colonies of Germany and Africa and the Pacific were split among the Entente members and given precious little autonomy, while the Middle Eastern states were little better off, but at least got lip service that one day they'd have true independence. There was also the interesting question of what to do with the shattered dominion of Austria-Hungary. Smaller Entente states would of course get their spoils, but with the emergence of new states all over Central Europe, it was expected that the League would be, have a guiding mission there too. 
It would be more hands-off, the people living there were confirmed white people after all, but it would steer events in the region in ways that have often been underappreciated. Those two principles of peaceful arbitration and international trusteeship would be embraced by President Wilson, who proceeded to act as though the ideas were all his own, which caused the British camp to give him the side-eyes, but hey, as long as Wilson was doing what they wanted, they were okay with it. The French were naturally suspicious of the Anglo-American daydreams, and in early 1919 were only interested in securing their position as the big dog of continental Europe. The Japanese and Italians, though, were positive on the idea of a league. After all, they were going to be offered permanent leadership spots on it. Perhaps more remarkable, and a surer sign that this was going to represent a true break from the past, was that smaller nations were invited to have a say in the formation of the league. The Chinese, Belgians, Brazilians, Portuguese, Greeks, Serbs, Poles, Romanians, and Czechoslovakians all got to sit with the great powers. This was something that just four years previous would have been unthinkable. The smaller states of the world were constantly at the mercies of the big players' whims. The Concert of Europe had been a pretty exclusive club, after all. But now their representatives got to press their cases face-to-face, and while it wasn't really an equal playing field, just like relations today, the smaller states actually had a voice. Moreover, on what would become the League Council, the group that set the agenda for the overall body, and roughly comparable to the modern Security Council, there would be a rotating cast of four non-great powers serving three-year terms. And as the months wore on during the first half of 1919, the scope of the project grew. Goals such as disarmament, the regulation of labor conditions, protection of minority rights across the world, fighting human trafficking and the drug trade, and more besides, were all eventually added to the League Covenant that emerged by June. Some big items that were discarded were the Japanese proposal for equal rights between ethnic groups, something hastily shot down by Wilson even when the League Committee was overall in favor of it. Two other discarded ideas were the French request for an international military organization, and also their request for an oversight body keeping track of international arms production. Again, the United States shot those ideas down as impossible to get through their Congress. Much to the chagrin of the Europeans, the moderate vision of the League proved to be just as impossible to get through the American Congress. On account of the Democratic Party's 1918 midterm losses, the Republicans were in power in both chambers and were in no mood to humor the holier-than-thou Wilson. Again, this is ground I covered before, so long story short, Woodrow Wilson couldn't deliver the goods to his European partners which was bad because it was expected for the U.S. to sit on the council and lend its mind-boggling economic influence to the League. The organization would have to find its footing without the U.S., Germany, or Russia. Which, if that sounds like a problem to you, everybody at the time was well aware of it as well. They just didn't have a whole lot of options besides dropping the idea, which was unacceptable to public opinion. The absence of the U.S. did cause the British to revise their expectations of the League, and they began to favor a scaled-back approach where the body would act as a consultative group. That doesn't sound very powerful, and it wasn't, but with so many big states outside the League's membership, even efforts as modest as economic sanctions could be circumvented by trading with non-members. The French resisted the idea of scaling back the League's mission statement, to which the British countered by offering a tier system of escalating sanctions based on hypothetical bad behavior by an offending state. 
The French didn't budge, which I sympathize with, as escalating levels of sanctions were open to being applied inconsistently and would rely on perspective. The British dropped the idea of weakening the League's on-paper sanction powers, but it was obvious to everyone that when push came to shove, they might get applied in a crisis at British insistence. There almost was an early example of what would happen when push came to shove in early 1921, when Yugoslavia entered northern Albania. But when talks of sanctions started getting kicked around among the League members, the Yugoslavs withdrew after a scant 10-day occupation. The early impasse in the League became clear, as the British didn't want firm commitments on account of not trusting their fellow League members to carry through on their own responsibilities, and feared they would leave the British shouldering more than its fair share. The French, meanwhile, had come around to the idea of a strong league, as they wanted an international tool to protect their own security. One man who actually tried in the early 1920s to bridge the two perspectives was Lord Robert Cecil. He was a diplomat and politician from the UK that had pushed for the league as part of the peace process, and had been instrumental in organizing it. He had resigned his positions in the UK government in November 1918 in order to get away from Prime Minister Lloyd George, whom he despised working with. Which worked out for him as his chief calling was working inside the League, and he became a representative to the League Assembly, although somewhat oddly he did so as South Africa's representative and not the UK's. The appointment was at the invitation of Jan Smoots, so I assume they must have gotten on well working in Paris together. Operating in the Swiss city of Geneva, which was the agreed-upon meeting place of the League, Cecil would become a leading figure in the Assembly. He took the initiative between the summers of 1922 and 23 to bridge the British-French divide by creating an agreement that enhanced the League's coercive powers by making collective security more standardized, but sweetened that loss of sovereignty by promoting disarmament. The idea being that security guarantees would induce nations to reduce their standing militaries. The collective security appealed to the French, the reduction in military commitments to the British, or at least that was the idea. In reality, by summer 1923, poor Lord Cecil had been overtaken by world events. Italy had taken the Greek island of Corfu, and the matter was handled by Britain and France with little League input, and called into question the viability of collective security. Keep in mind, all this was still brand new as far as diplomacy went, and there was a lot of distrust to overcome. And too bad again for Cecil, he didn't have a lot of champions back in the national capitals. The British didn't trust smaller states to meet their responsibilities, while the big powers outside the League were also against it. Their opinion counted because Cecil had cleverly pitched his idea as a treaty that would be both enshrined in the League Covenant, but also be open to non-members as a standalone agreement. And you really couldn't have collective security without the U.S., Germany, and the USSR. A more concrete attempt at an agreement came out of the Ruhr crisis that had begun in 1923. The chaos that spun out of that little interlude, which I seem to keep coming back to, was only wound down when left governments in the UK under Ramsay MacDonald and in France under Edouard Herriot came to power in 1924. Both recognized that the existing peace settlements would need to be shored up, and once the Ruhr crisis started getting settled, both men agreed to appear at the League Assembly in Geneva, the first time national leaders appeared there. MacDonald had not favored Cecil's proposals on the grounds that collective security should be guaranteed by disarmament first and not the other way around. Both he and Herriot resolved to go further. The resulting proposal came to be known as the Geneva Protocol. It would go furthest in empowering the League, making any dispute between nations subject to arbitration by it. 
And if one of the parties to the dispute failed to submit itself to the League, well, they'd be branded the aggressor party and acted against by everybody else. If the dispute was over a strictly legal matter, it would be referred to the League's Permanent Council of International Justice. If the dispute was of a diplomatic nature, then the League Council got involved. And if the Council found itself gridlocked, then arbiters pulled from the smaller neutral nations of the world would make a decision. Which was all new because the League Council was expected to abide by those decisions, meaning that international decisions of high importance could be made by nations previously considered insignificant. In addition, the Protocol also established plans for general disarmament, with a conference to be held in a year's time, and branded all war to be a crime. This was a huge legal maneuver, as while war was agreed upon as being unseemly, it was a perfectly valid tool for nations to use in moderation. To suddenly declare the whole idea a crime meant revising centuries of international consensus, and will be an idea I'll be returning to later on in this miniseries. As you might already have guessed going by future events, the protocol proved to be too great a reach. By the time it was presented, it was the fall of 1924, and McDonald's shaky coalition government between Labour and the Liberals was dissolving, while the Tories slammed him the media for selling out national sovereignty to Geneva. On top of other controversies like the Zinoviev letter, the protocol brought down the McDonald government, and the resulting conservative one didn't want anything to do with the scheme. They opted for a regional conference between the Entente, the Germans, and the smaller European powers that would eventually become the Locarno Treaties, which I'll be covering in a couple weeks. And while those treaties provided some very celebrated local successes, that was mostly confined to Germany's western borders, making the settlements a one-way affair that left plenty of trouble in the rest of the world. And speaking of the rest of the world, the League did have some smaller successes elsewhere, primarily in the Balkans. Case in point was a Greek quote-unquote invasion of Bulgaria in October 1925, which handed the League a much-needed win on the international front. The incident occurred on the border between the two countries, close to where both met Yugoslavia. Reportedly, a Greek soldier was chasing after his dog and unknowingly crossed the border, resulting in him being gunned down by a Bulgarian sentry. The Bulgarians, racked by internal conflicts, didn't want anything to do with an external one, but the Greeks wanted to make a scene of it, and under the dictatorship of General Pangalos, who had just seized power in June of that year and might have already been feeling the need for an international distraction. The Greeks occupied the border town of Petrik and demanded a monetary compensation as their price to leave. This time, the UK, France, and Italy rushed to action, promising economic sanctions and a naval blockade if Greece didn't back down. Within 10 days, the Greeks did so, and a potential war was successfully averted. But this and the Yugoslav case back in 1921 were almost exceptions that proved the rule, as big questions of international diplomacy were still hashed out in conferences between big powers. That isn't to say the League wasn't without value handling other responsibilities in the world, though. One thing I didn't cover during my overview of Central Europe was the League's role in events during the 1920s in the region. I said earlier in this episode that the former Habsburg subjects weren't considered for the mandate system, but that didn't mean that the League and ergo other powers didn't have their hands all over the Austro-Hungarian successor states. Austria was especially eager to get involved with the League for a whole host of reasons. There had already been intellectual discussions before World War I about how the old empire wasn't viable anymore, but given that those same intellectuals derived a whole host of benefits from being on top of that empire, 
they didn't want to see it go away entirely. So, many in Austria looked towards the future of the empire as a kind of federation, something ironically supported by Archduke Franz Ferdinand before he got his brains blown out. With the Great War lost, those same Austrians looked towards the League as an example of their internationalist dream, but on a global scale. This was also why Austria campaigned to have the permanent League headquarters in Vienna rather than Geneva. The old bureaucracy there would be able to service a whole new institution, and appropriate palaces were scattered all over town and suddenly available. And while they didn't achieve that ambition, the Viennese played host to endless international conferences over the 20s, albeit some lacked the prestige of others. Looking at you, International Postal Union Conference. But the big reason most Austrians gravitated towards the League in the early 20s was because the nation was flat broke and starving to death. The starving to death part was actually addressed before the League came into existence, as by mid-1919 the American Relief Administration had headquarters itself in Vienna. This choice was made because during World War I, Austrian nutritional experts had gotten some real hands-on experience with managing food supplies and keeping a population starving but alive, as opposed to dead. They had experts on the ground the ARA could use, and once the crisis had passed, the League would make use of them for their League of Nations health organization. There, they would help tackle malnutrition, especially among children. Making use of the League's access to statistical reporting from all over the world, much more informed decisions could be made regarding bettering the world's health. Which, hey, kind of a success story there for a change. But the other big interest of Austria in the League was not having any money, and that was going to be a far more disillusioning experience. Austria needed a foreign loan to keep the lights on, literally, but the League didn't have a banking apparatus. Private lenders would need to be tapped, with League members helping guarantee the loans would be paid back. Which sounds potentially predatory, as in the modern day, the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank would step in. Which, oh boy, does not speak highly for how far we've come. This scenario was a little bit different, with the idea of a League committee being the one to control how the loan was distributed, which meant that effectively the League would control Austrian finances. The Austrian finance minister actually agreed pretty readily to this in early 1921, as it meant the inevitable budget cuts and tax hikes would be coming from the League and not his own government. A problem arose over what the committee would look like. The Austrians wanted a seven-man membership with themselves having three of the spots. The League Council shot that idea down, but couldn't agree on a composition either, which you wouldn't think it'd be that hard. The Austrians didn't like this and broke off talks. The thing is, the financial crisis only got worse, and in September 1922, the Austrians had to go crawling back to the League. While the wording of the conditions was softened, the eventual deal left a League committee in charge of the money and the conditions under which it'd be handed out embittering the Austrians to the League experiment that they had been so initially enthusiastic for. The Austrian experience would later inform the Hungarian one. By the time that Hungary emerged from its civil war and foreign invasions, the fragile government was open to foreign controls. The loan that was eventually authorized in February 1924 also had the added bonus of getting the League to make Hungary's little entente neighbors back off when it came to pressuring them for reparations and help smooth the establishment of normal relations. The loan also opened the way for the United States to start providing their own financing as well, which, at the price of state sovereignty, meant that Hungary rapidly reintegrated itself into the international finance and diplomatic network. Towards the end of the decade, a second issue arose with the case of the Optants. 
The Optants were those who lived in lands that Hungary had lost after the war, and decided to migrate to Hungary's remaining core afterwards. Part of the provisions of the Treaty of Trianon were that the new governments of the conquests were supposed to provide compensation for the ethnic Hungarians leaving their homes. The Little Entente members had all signed off on that in 1919, but when the time came, balked at paying up. This started a seven-year legal saga that was only resolved in April 1930. The Romanians flatly rejected paying on the grounds that the new territory was theirs and they could repossess property at will as they were a sovereign state. The Hungarians pointed out their treaty obligations. They went around and around for the better part of the decade when the League finally threw up its hands when it arbitrated a final agreement that saw money get loaned out to go towards what the Hungarians owed for reparations, with the wink-wink part of the deal being that the reparations money would be the main source of the opt-in's compensation. Now, the history of the League during the 1920s in terms of establishing a lasting peace was obviously a mixed bag, to say the least. It did provide a forum for smaller states to settle disputes peacefully, which, hey, actually worked. It also provided the international organization to streamline relief efforts and a forum for cooperation between states, which was both laudable and something that was brand new, something that had never really been tried on that kind of scale before. And it certainly provided valuable experience for experiments in the future. But the big questions of peace could not be answered by the League, first because of the absence of the U.S., then because of the friction between France and the U.K., and while it was able to resolve conflicts among smaller states and, as I just covered, stabilize nations like Austria and Hungary, those were more band-aid resolutions than lasting settlements. Central Europe still stewed, and the major nations of the world still kept to their old standards of behavior, because the success stories of the League when it came to preserving peace were among the smaller nations of the world. The big issues among the big players were going to continue to be tackled with the League off to the side, usually as a rubber stamp to what was agreed upon. And as we inch closer to Season 2, the limitations of the League were only going to be more obvious. Next week, we get into the topic of disarmament, specifically naval disarmament, which was really kicked off by the Washington Naval Treaty, a landmark agreement limiting the construction of, what else, ships. It also codified a balance of power in the Pacific, but that balance was based on who had how many ships. So join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.